Hey YA is sponsored by TBR, Book Riot subscription service offering reading recommendations personalized to your reading life. Want great new YA books to read but are overwhelmed by all the publishing buzz? Let us help. Tell TBR about your reading likes and dislikes and what you're looking for and sit back while your bibliologist handpicks recommendations just for you. TBR offers plans to receive hardcover books in the mail or recommendations by email so there's an option for every budget. TBR is produced in partnership with Print, a bookstore in Portland, Maine, so you can treat your shelf and support an indie too. TBR is also available as a gift. Visit mytbr.co to sign up today. That's mytbr.co. Welcome to Hey YA. From great new books to favorite classic reads, from news stories to the latest in on-screen adaptations, Hey YA is here to elevate the exciting world of young adult lit. Hey YA is a book riot podcast hosted by me, Kelly Jensen, and new co-host, second episode co-host, Sarah Hannah Gomez. We are recording on Thursday, October 22nd, 2020. Hello. Hey. How's it going? Oh, you know, it's that time of year, that time of the semester, but I'll survive. Good. (laughs) It's always that time of something. Yeah. And it's also, uh, you know, there's some political stuff going on. Just like a teensy bit bit. of stuff. It's not really like anything. (laughs) I mean, in that global pandemic, no big deal. (laughs) Not at all. Nothing about that affects my life at all. Oh, wow. Yeah. I feel like we're in that weird space like between christmas and new year's that's like what what do i do with myself do i eat a lot of cheese like you know you can't read the news but also you read the news and you can't read a book because you can't focus enough at least that's my experience reading has not really happened recently for me it's been it's been kind of my escape, which has been nice. I've read a lot more in this pandemic, even with like some major depression and injuries than I had been recently before that. But definitely, I feel guilty when I'm not informed. But also, mm. I read five minutes of news and I'm like, oh, I just mm. can't. Yeah. I can't. <laughs> Please stop. Yeah. And it's like, I, you know, I read my local news every day um, and get mad every day. And then I read major city news and get mad. And then I read the national news, international news and get mad. It's like, hmm, there's a trend here. And yet, I continue to follow it. Right? I'm always like, everything is awful. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) You know, what's not awful, though, our show, like we have so much to dig into today. I'm really, really excited about our multiple topics that all kind of weave together very nicely. So Let's hit our first sponsor and then we'll dive right in. Our first sponsor is Instant Karma by Marissa Meyer, a new spin from number one bestselling author Marissa Meyer. Prudence Daniels is always quick to cast judgment on the residents of her coastal town. Her dreams of karmic justice are filled when, after a night out with her friends, she wakes up with the sudden ability to cast instant karma on those around her. When Prue starts to uncover the truth, her newfound karmic insights reveal how thin the line is between virtue and vanity, generosity and greed, love and hate, and fate. That's our, our sponsor. Thank you to Instant Karma by Marissa Meyer, who has written fantasy and science fiction up to this point and now is doing romance. I want that superpower. That sounds 
great because I am a petty label and that would be useful. <laughs> you know what would be a really interesting show? I'm gonna write this down so I don't forget it. Like teen superpowers we wish we had. Ah <gasps> yes. Cause it's like there's so many good ones in YA. There really are. But that's not what we're talking about today. We are going to talk about how to how to describe it, like setting, but also more than setting is a I guess a nice way to sort of look at it from a global perspective, if you will. And what we were thinking when we were brainstorming is about what we do and don't see in YA when it comes to setting, which can be such a crucial part of a story and can really take a reader to a place or sort of fade into the background of a story when a reader is immersed in more character-driven narratives. So before we dive into some of the like specifics of setting that we want to highlight, like cool places, interesting places, places we don't see a lot, we thought we would talk a little bit about where we don't see much YA set. If you want to uh, start the conversation, because I know you you brought this topic up and I love it. So I'd love to hear sort of what made you want to talk about this. Like what was going on in your head? What were you thinking about? So speaking of being Petty LaBelle, <laughs> I am still bothered by the time probably close to 10 years ago, a lit mag editor who was a very good you know, editor of this story told me I needed to go back and explain um, why it was a problem that a character had nearly fallen into a jumping choya. A jumping choya is a cactus that will kind of jump on you. Um, so anyone in the desert knows like, oh, snap, don't get too close to that or you will be picking stuff out of your skin and out of your clothes. And she was like, there's no reason anyone would know that. And I was like, I don't know like what a you know, oak tree looks like, aside from <laughs> tree shaped. So it just got me thinking, like, there are not a lot of books that take place in the Southwest, at least not a lot for teens. Mm -hmm. And I want to see more of that. I sort of have a problem with this idea that certain settings are considered universal when, like mm -hmm. I said, you know, sweater weather is not a concept that made sense to me until I moved to Boston and lots of trees. I'm like, it's a tree-shaped tree. <laughs> I can't really give you much detail besides that. When you describe a certain tree in a book, I just see tree. I'm like 100% with this. And I say this as somebody who grew up in like a tiny suburb in the Midwest, where certainly like Chicago was about an hour away when I grew up. And, you know, go to the city for like big stuff. But Chicago is not New York City, right? And yet so many books are set in New York City. And it's written in such a way that like, one, anyone reading it would be enamored with the city. And two, like you would know the meaning of these things. And I remember I have this very, very specific memory of being at a publisher preview for one of the big five. And they were very excited to take us to the top of the rock and they kept talking about how great this was. And I was like, what does that even mean? Like, I'm not from here. I'm not like a New York City person. I have no idea what this means. I have no frame of reference. And then they explained it to me. You know, it's the top of the Rockefeller Center. And I was like, how am I supposed to know that? You know, <laughs> like, but I could tell you about cornfields a little bit in ways that you know, you probably wouldn't understand. Or I can discuss oak savannas, which is a thing we have out Whoa. here in the Midwest. And yeah, I mean, you wouldn't know what that means. And nope. I suspect that like somebody, you know, in New York City might not know what that means. Because you get in your head like, 
what a savanna looks like. And it's like, why would that be made with oak trees? What's the significance of that? And it's just, it's fascinating. Like you said, what's considered sort of this universal understanding when it comes to setting and what's like so specific that you as a reader are like, I don't know what that means, you know, and good readers are going to look it up who are interested. But in some ways, it's like, where are the books that reflect a wider range of experiences where somebody who is very familiar with urban life lives in New York City, lives in LA, like they have to do the work to look up what these things mean. Exactly. I think I know you and I are concerned with this and lots of other bookish people are, but this idea of white as like the sort of default Mm -hmm. raceless race is a pervasive idea in media in general, not just books. And then you have things adjacent to that, like heterosexual is not a sexuality, everything else deviates from that. So obviously, like regional variety versus racism, like mm-hmm. not the same level of urgent. Right. Yeah, yeah. But it's this same sort of thing where you have this sort of like nebulous, I don't know, I feel like it's like partially Midwest, partially East Coast setting when you don't have a specific mm-hmm. one like New York City. And we're all expected to just be like, why, yes, that's where humans live. <laughs> I'm like, none of this is like my home at all. But I do think... A lot of this does tie in with race as well. Like you think about, I think about books, uh, Brandy Colbert's first book, Point, was set in the Chicago suburbs and the main character is a black teen girl. And how often do you see that where she's a black teen girl living in the suburbs and it's like, that's just her life. And I feel like representation like that is getting better, but it's still really lacking. And another one that I think about all the time, and this is from my own experiences living in a small town in Wisconsin, is that there are so few YA books where the main character of the story is Latinx and they live in a rural community. And it's not a small number. The particular town I was in, we were somewhere like 40% of the community was Latinx. And a lot of them worked the farms or they were working in service industries that took place in the resort towns nearby and they could live more rural where it was a little bit more affordable. And it's like, where are these stories? These kids were coming into my library all the time and I had nothing like, here's a story of a girl like you because those didn't exist and they're still really tough to come by. I totally agree. I know for me, at least if I just want like that Tucson feel, my favorite two books for this are um, The House of the Scorpion and the sequel, The Lord of Opium, because the made up country of opium is something that it's made up of the lower part of Arizona and the upper part of Sonora, Mexico, Mm. which is exactly where I live. I'm about 50 miles from the US-Mexico border in Tucson. So reading that, I was like, oh, my God, like, that's a real place. At one Mm -hmm. point, they go to the Biosphere 2, which is an actual place outside of Tucson where they, like, rebuilt the Earth (laughs) inside of a big building, basically. It's wild. But they went to that. And I was like, oh, my God, that's people are going to think that this is like a made up goofy thing. But it's (laughs) actually a real place where they really did do an experiment and see if people could just live inside this like microcosm, like the most literal microcosm (laughs) you could find. I think a lot about when I lived in Austin, I lived in Austin, Texas for a few years, and I was never enamored with the way it was portrayed everywhere as this like quirky and perfect like hipster 
city when in reality it's a deeply divided city between those who have and those who have not and obviously that also plays into race here and the interstate in Austin literally divides the city and at the time I was there it was still very much the east side was the side for brown and black people and the west side was the wealthy white people it's where the university was it was where the rich kids who were going to school on their parents dollars staying in these fancy condos downtown um that's where they lived but now it's gotten so gentrified on the east side that even these families who had been there forever can't afford to be there anymore they're being pushed out so whenever i see Austin portrayed, and it doesn't show up a whole lot in YA, but periodically it does. I wait for those books that get it right. And one that I think about all the time and that I feel like captures it perfectly is The Memory of Light by Francisco X. Stork. And it's such a breath of fresh air. It's not this like romanticized vision of this awesome alternative city, but rather like, okay, you know, this is a main character of color living on the east side. Like her, her community as other teens of color and it's not this like awesome place to live and to grow and like it's a tough place to be and there's so many challenges and it felt real in a way that I hadn't seen before. That's a good point. We don't really see a lot of books that deal with segregated cities without being about segregation. You know, like just about mm -hmm. like what it's like mm -hmm. to just take a bus to your magnet school or to, you know, have a friend who lives in sort of the Irish enclave and you live in like the African, you know, neighborhood and just what it's like to live in these segregated cities without the entire plot being like, what happens when we interact with each other? Did you read that Renee Watson book that does that? Piecing Me Together? I loved that book. Yeah. I was going to say, that's a really good example. And her previous book, This Side of Home, is one that dealt specifically with gentrification. But I feel like the this one, Piecing Me Together, was awesome at showcasing that very thing, like a very segregated city and what it's like to take that bus from your community of color to the white side of town to go to school because you're on a scholarship. And then that particular book delves into what happens when you're the scholarship kid and everybody treats you in a way that's very clear that they don't think that you're actually equal to the rest of your peers, but rather somebody who needs like special treatment all the time. Yes. When I read that, that was one of those books where I was like, I have never wanted to travel back in time so much as I would like to give this book to my teen self. And I told that to Renee and mm. I was like, oh my God, please, you know, write this 15 years earlier instead. Like, oh, it's such a good book. This is like, on the complete flip side of things, I don't know why this got in my head, probably, I don't know, five years ago, seven years ago, but I've never read a YA book set in North Dakota. And I don't know why this bothers me so much, but I mean, I spent a little time in North Dakota. Um, my college roommate lived in Sydney, Montana, which is like right by the border. Nearest town is Williston. And so I was out there for about a week and... The only thing to do is to go to Williston, and this is before the oil explosion out there that turned Williston from this like little nothing town to suddenly like one of the most expensive places to live. But I haven't seen any YA set there, and I feel like there's so much fascinating stuff either about living in a boom town like that or even living in the middle of nowhere, North Dakota. Like, is it a thing that you like? Is it a thing you don't like? Is it is that the story? Like, you wrestle with being part of a community that's 
teeny tiny and I'm going to guess, you know, of a certain perspective mentally? Or like, do you learn to love it? I want that story is what I'm getting at. (laughs) Definitely. Yeah, I think the only times I see like the Dakotas and Montana mentioned, aside from firefighters for Montana, is... (laughs) looking at maps and Mm. people talking about the Electoral College. Mm. Like, that's the only thing I feel like I ever see about North Dakota is, why are there so few people and so many senators? (laughs) (laughs) Well, and it's interesting. And again, I think it's because I've traveled through there. It's like, there are literal ghost towns there that just fascinate me. And it's like, there's so much potential, you know, but where are these stories? I don't know. And what's it like to grow up in the quote unquote city in North Dakota? Like, I... I'm curious. And maybe our listeners are going, I know the book that's set there. If you do, you can email and let us know. But, you know, once you start digging into what you see and you don't see, it's fascinating to see and discover like, oh, my goodness, there really aren't any books set there. Or there's way more books set there than I thought there was. And I think we'll talk a little bit more in the next section about books set in some I don't want to say far-flung places, but in some places that don't necessarily see the same level of attention or time dedicated to them as, say, New York City or L.A. Absolutely. Um, The other thing that I am passionate about, I guess, with this issue also kind of comes from living so close to Mexico. About a month ago, I went to the dentist and I went to one in Mexico. There's a city called Nogales and there's like an Arizona Mm -hmm. side and a Mexico side, but they're literal just walking distance. You just have to cross Mm -hmm. the border. And walking across into Mexico took 30 seconds. It was just here we are and now we're over here. And to get back, we were standing in line for 80 minutes. And then we had to go inside, put our stuff through a metal detector, answer, you know, kind of rapid fire questions, all that. And I was like, well, I'm exhausted. But then I was like, other people do this every single day Mm -hmm. just to like go to work or see grandma or go shopping. And, you know, we see books about immigration, which are important Mm -hmm. and we could always use more. But I was like, What is it like living in a divided city or at least, you know, having to do a bunch of your life in a sort of divided city? And the closest parallel I could think of was, you know, other cities like that, like Berlin before the wall came down. Um, There's Beirut. So I know there are a few books that take place in those places. Speaking of Francisco X. Stork, his book Disappeared (laughs) takes place in Ciudad Juarez, Mexico, and then moves into El Paso, Texas. But otherwise, yeah, I feel like we look at it as the only reason you would cross a border is to escape something or to go towards Mm -hmm. something, not just because, you know, your dentist is on the other side of the border. Right. And, you know, there's groceries you want or something like that. So that is something I would love to see more of is that sort of living in the borderlands, as we tend to call it, or what Gloria and Saldua calls Nepantla, this in-between place that you exist when you're of both and neither place at the same time. Yeah, it's fascinating, like, because that's an experience I know nothing about, right? And to hear that, it's like, why haven't I read this story before? And you make such a great point about either running away from or escaping rather than like, this is just the reality of your day to day. And something as routine as going to the dentist is a whole production because that's just what 
it is to be in America, number one, but two, just like that's the reality of living in a space that is a border and has different regulations and expectations and cultures embedded in it. Yeah, absolutely. And then just really quick before we move on, because I know we have so many things to talk about, (laughs) you know, because I want more books that take place exactly in my neck of the woods, because it would make me personally happy. So publishing should accommodate (laughs) that is um, they are actually immigration books, but I think they kind of do things a bit differently because they're not like inspirational, you know. And I do think in general, they sort of expand the conversation. There's Journey of Dreams by Marge Pellegrino, which is really great because it's a younger YA. And I think we talked about this either last week or just in private conversations that YA is veering older these days. So this Mm -hmm. one's nice for the younger teens. And it's about a girl who's in Guatemala during the Scorched Earth campaign. And so her family is trying to move north which means passing through Mexico. Um, and I think with the migrant crisis, especially now, everyone says it's, you know, they're, they're Mexicans. But like, actually, it's just that geographically, <laughs> they have to go through Mexico. So this mm-hmm. one um, deals with the sanctuary movement in the 80s. Um, so they specifically go through Tucson. The author is a Tucsonan who works with those populations. She does amazing work with refugees. So it's fantastic, Journey of Dreams by Marge Pellegrino. And then a book I just discovered this year, and I'm waiting for my copy, is uh, Sia Martinez and the Moonlit Beginning of Everything by Raquel Vasquez-Gilliland. And that is another one that is right in the Sonoran Desert. So I am so excited to see like my, my hood sort of <laughs> being represented. Um, because I think living in a sanctuary city is another thing we we don't see in a lot of books like we Tucson is an official um, refugee resettlement city. So over the years, you know, in the 80s and early 90s, we had a lot of refugees from the USSR. When I was a teen, we had a lot from Sudan. So, you know, depending on kind of what the big issue is, our latest big group is from Syria. It really it's an interesting thing to see in your city's population, especially as those generations grow up and have children. So you have these kids who are now, you know, entering middle school or so, at least for the Sudanese, who are growing up in this city where their parents are not immigrants per se, but, you know, have this experience. And then what is it like to be first generation American when it wasn't a typical immigration experience? So that's my request for all the writers listening. (laughs) (laughs) I I mean, my where I live isn't as rich in history and isn't as I think opportune for storytelling in a way that the setting is going to be something particularly special but I just read a nonfiction book last month I believe and it was it was a book about the suburbs and kind of the the cultural history and mythos around suburbia and the author was describing this specific stretch of road and a specific building on it and a specific set of lion statues on it. And I immediately knew where it was because this was uh, a neighboring town from where I live now. And it was such a wild experience to be reading it going, I know where this is. So then I immediately read it out loud to my husband. He's like, oh yeah, that's, you know, he named the place. And I was like, so weird to have that moment of like, oh, I actually know this place. This isn't just like no in my head can picture, but like actually no have been there. 
And then thinking about YA that has been set here, I can think of one book. There's a scene in Deb Coletti's A Heart in a Body in the World where the main character who is on this cross-country run is following US 20, which runs about 15 minutes south of where I live. And so she runs through that town, town south of me. And it was just, it was one of those moments when I was reading, I was like, oh, this is kind of neat. Like, I know this place. And, you know, um, it was clear she had done a little bit of research to at least like make it clear that it wasn't just like farm town that she was describing. Yes, there is quite a bit of that, but that's not all it is. (laughs) And it was kind of neat to have that moment of like, oh, yeah, I, I actually know this place and it's cool to see it pop up in YA. So my my request is less of what I want to see where I'm at and more. I want more stories that are set in places like where you live, because as a reader, I don't get to visit those places very often. Well, and especially now, no one can visit anywhere. So <laughs> yeah, that too. <laughs> and we're already, you know, getting ready for pandemic literature to come out. So right. <sighs> okay, well, let's move to our second sponsor. And then we can get on to two other topics. We have so much to talk about today. <laughs> yeah. So our second sponsor is Smash It by Francina Simone. Olivia Liv James is done with letting her insecurities get the best of her. So she does what any self-respecting hot mess of a girl who wants to smash junior year does. She makes a list. Uh, effortless. She kicks it off by trying out for the school musical, saying yes to a date, and making new friends. However, with change comes a lot of missteps, and being bold means following her heart. So what happens when Liv's heart is interested in three different guys? And two of them are her best friends. Nice. Who needs a love triangle when you can have a rectangle? Yeah. Um, That sounds like so much fun. I've had this book sitting on my shelf for a while and just haven't gotten to it yet. Nice. It looks great. So if we don't get to our third topic, we can save that for the next episode because I'm like looking at our our notes for this particular section and it's it's not small. Indeed. (laughs) (laughs) But we wanted to talk about why I set in both rural places as well as in non-US, non-Canada, non-UK settings to sort of give this really fascinating look at communities that aren't represented as much in YA. Yeah, I think it's kind of fun that we said we would talk about both and yet our immediate instincts, mine was to go around the world and yours was rural because (laughs) we've already talked about how passionate you are about that. So It'll be fun to kind of go back and forth and be like, at home, over there, at home, over there. Yeah. So before we dive in, I was going to mention that there's a new award through, uh, oh man, I can't remember who it's through, but it's called the Whippoorwill Award. I'll link to it in the show notes. And it's a new award to honor rural settings in children's literature. So I love that there's going to be like a literal award to raise some more awareness about these books that are set in more rural areas. We definitely need that. That goes really well with the um, Street Literature Award, actually, for two really important experiences that are not being middle class in one of the you know four major metro areas of the United States. Exactly, exactly. And it also it just it offers more books for people to discover as well. You know, even if they don't know that they want street literature or rural setting, it's like you discover a whole bunch of new books that sound awesome and that you do want to read. Exactly. Poor us with more things to put on our TBR. Life is hard. (laughs) 
So my first pick is one that I immediately thought of when you brought up the topic that there aren't a lot of books set in the desert Southwest, because this one is. It's called Like Water by Rebecca Potos. And it follows a girl named Vanny who lives in a small New Mexico town. It's called La Trampa. And it's the kind of place that teenagers flee upon graduation. Or as Vanny describes, they find themselves stuck there for life. And as much as she has wanted to flee, she has to stick around after graduation to help take care of her father, who's pretty sick, as well as the family Mexican restaurant. So she's kind of resigned to this, like, I'm staying here. This is a small town, like, I'm going to be a townie for life. And then she meets Lee, who is a new girl in town. I guess I should say Vanny doesn't meet Lee. She first meets Lee's brother and then is really put off by Lee's attitude and brashness. But soon, of course, Vanny can't get enough of Lee and the two start to fall for one another. And it blossoms into something pretty powerful. And this is one of those books that explores what it is that Vanny really wants, both in the place where she's at and the places that she hopes to be. And that's on every level, the physical, emotional, and relationship level. And this is a really fabulous book and a quiet one about sexual identity, about sexual fluidity. And it features a character who identifies as genderqueer. I think that was one of the first ones that I read where that terminology is actually used on the page. Both the characters in the story are sharp and prickly and yet so fully realized and realistic. And I like this book because too often we see the leaving town trope, like that's the one that gets a lot of attention. But this one is where Fanny learns to make the town work for her and finds herself really seeing where she fits in 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 this small town. And that is Like Water by Rebecca Potos. That is a book I saw so much buzz about, and I don't think I ever even knew remotely the plot. (laughs) So now I'm like, oh, I think I like just knew the title and people were talking about it. Well, now you do. (laughs) I guess I forgot to look into it and find the summary. (laughs) So I'm going to go around the world (laughs) just to take it away from home. So right now I'm sitting in my office, which is inside of the beautiful Worlds of Words collection. And we call it a collection of international and global children's and YA books. And the reason for doing that is because at least around these parts, um, we use the words differently. So global means books that take place elsewhere, but are written and published here. And by here, I mean the Anglophone world minus Anglophone because of colonization, and elsewhere is everywhere um, but the Anglophone world. And then international we use for books that were written elsewhere and that we imported here. So there's, yeah, different definitions, at least here. I don't actually know if that's just an us thing or if lots of people use those terms. But my first choice is When the Ground is Hard by Mala Nun. That was one of my favorite books I read last year. So um, it is a boarding school story. So that alone, I was Mm. like, well, this is for me because (laughs) there's nothing I like more than school stories. And it's about the popular girl who all of a sudden becomes less popular and has to deal with like, what do I do when I've been part of the it crowd and now I have to find a new friend? Especially when, you know, like she maybe wasn't the nicest to people who weren't popular before she became unpopular. So it's about her new roommate and 
them kind of getting to know each other and being sort of the, should we say, the the radicals on campus. But it also deals a lot with racism. And I just like girl-girl, not girl-girl relationships, like romantic relationships, although those are great, but just how girls interact with each other. Because, Mm -hmm. you know, I think we get a lot of perspectives of like girls are just catty with each other all the time. And I think this does a really good job at showing the cattiness, but also showing that it's actually a lot more complex than that. And it has a lot to do with kind of girls sort of being told that that's who they are and like living up to that expectation. It's a really, really great book. I absolutely love it. And it is When the Ground is Hard by Malanen. Oh, and it takes place in Swaziland. Sorry, (laughs) I probably should have added that part. (laughs) I'm going to bring it back to rural U.S. Now that we've gone global, we'll come back and then we'll leave again and then we'll come back and then we'll leave again. Absolutely. We're doing a lot of traveling. Jet lag. Yeah. You know what, though? Like, we're traveling with our imagination. That means there's no jet lag. That's true. That's the beauty of it. So my next pick is Rural Voices, 15 Authors Challenge Assumptions About Small Town America, edited by Nora Shalloway Carpenter. And it just came out this month. I've had a copy sitting on my shelf for a while, haven't read it yet. I cannot wait to, though. And so I'm going to read the little little blip. And what I'm especially excited about with this book is it's really quite diverse and I think more reflective of what rural America really looks like than sort of the image that's often portrayed. So here's a little description of it. Gracie sees a chance of fitting in at her South Carolina private school until a quote-unquote white trash-themed Halloween party has her steering clear of the rich kids. Samuel's Tejano family has both stood up to oppression and been a source of it, but now he's ready to own his true sexual identity. A Puerto Rican teen in Utah discovers that being a rodeo queen means embracing her heritage and not shedding it. For most of America's history, rural people and culture have been casually mocked, stereotyped, and in general deeply misunderstood. Now an array of short stories, poetry, graphic short stories, and personal essays, along with anecdotes from the author's real lives, dives deep into the complexity and diversity of rural America and the people who call it home. There's 15 authors in this book, diverse and ethnic background, sexual orientation, geographic location, and socioeconomic status. And they explore the challenges, beauty, and nuances of growing up in rural America. From a mountain town in New Mexico to the gorges of New York to the Arctic tundra of Alaska, you'll find yourself visiting parts of this country you might not know existed and meet characters whose lives might be surprisingly similar to your own. That is Rural Voices, 15 Authors Challenge Assumptions About Small Town America, edited by Nora Shalloway Carpenter. I added that book to my TBR so fast when I saw the announcement for it, and now I'm so Mm. excited that it's actually out because I feel like I've been waiting for it for a minute. (laughs) I need to do that thing that I like to do with short story collections, which is like in between books I'm reading, read a short story or two from it and keep myself reading without feeling like I need to invest in a whole book just yet. But you know, I'd have to be reading right now to make that happen. <laughs> Very true. YA short story anthologies are in a really good place right now. Yes. But that's like a whole extra podcast episode. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so my next book, I'm going back to Africa and back to pretty pretty close in region. Um, this next book takes place in Zimbabwe. So 
Um, both Zimbabwe and Swaziland are in like the southeast corner of the continent. So they make really good reading pairings, I think. So it's Out of Shadows by Jason Wallace. This is one of those books that like really destroyed me. You can't unread it. It is, you know, for content warning, it is rather violent, but in that way, that's like really moving. So it's set in Zimbabwe in the 1980s. I'll read the little blip here as well. So just after the war for independence, a young English boy, Jacqueline, is torn between his black friends at school and his sympathy for the colonial whites after witnessing the compulsory land seizures by Robert Mugabe's government. But with an imminent visit by Robert Mugabe to the school, Jacqueline realizes that Ivan, his white supremacist schoolmate, plans to assassinate the black leader. The novel leaves us with the moral dilemma. In hindsight, should Jacqueline have killed Ivan or let Ivan kill Robert Mugabe? It is such an interesting book, both because I didn't really know much about Zimbabwe's history, but also I can't think of another book where we look at ways that the inheritors of colonialism, like um, like the kids at this school, had to deal with sort of having their their world upended when people were pushing towards independence and I don't want to say taking their country back because that has implications in the US, but taking their country back. So it's this thing where you're like, you know, kids are not colonizers. So you do feel bad for this kid who's, you know, kind of losing his home and who he thought he was. But then you also are like, but colonization, you should go back to where you're from. So it's a really interesting exploration of racial relationships in a country that is going through massive change and um, deals with some really hard hitting issues. It's fantastic, but definitely a content warning there that there is some scary physical and emotional violence. So that is Out of Shadows by Jason Wallace. I haven't even heard of it, but it sounds like a must read. I hadn't either until I found it in our closet here at Worlds of Words. <laughs> so Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think it got buzzed, but I. Oh, it's amazing. I'm going to take us back to the U.S., to Indiana specifically, and I'm going to talk about three books back to back. One I'm going to go in depth with, two I'll hit really quickly. And it's interesting because I was like, I'm poking around for books set in places that we don't see too many books set and found one that was in Indiana. And as soon as I was reading the description, it made me immediately think of two more. These are all featuring characters of color as leads written by authors of color. So these are all own voices. And I believe at least one of them, the author herself is from Indiana. I don't know about the other two, so I'm not going to say yes or no or what kind of work they've done in it. But the first one is Our Wayward Fate by Gloria Chow. And this is the one I haven't picked up yet, but it sounds so up my alley. And I'm going to give the little description of this, which is that 17-year-old Allie Chu knows that as the only Asian person in her school in the middle of nowhere, Indiana, she must be bland as white toast to survive. This means swapping her kanji lunch for PB&Js, ignoring the clueless racism from her classmates and teachers, and keeping her mouth shut when people wrongly call her Allie instead of her actual name, Ali, after the mountain in Taiwan. And you know who did that when I was reading the description. Her autopilot existence is disrupted when she finds out that Chase Yu, the new kid in town, is also Taiwanese. Despite some initial resistance due to the they-belong-together whispers, Ali and Chase soon spark a chemistry rooted in competitive martial arts, joking in two languages, and most importantly, 
pushing back against the discrimination they face. But when Ali's mom finds out about their relationship, she forces Ali to end it. As Ali covertly digs into the why behind her mother's disapproval, she uncovers secrets about her family and Chase that force her to question everything she thought she knew about life, love, and her unknowable future. That is Our Wayward Fate by Gloria Chow. And then the other two I wanted to briefly mention, You Should See Me in a Crown by Leah Johnson about a black girl in small town Indiana who is ready to go out and make her dreams come true, but she finds herself needing to run for her school's prom queen in order to get a scholarship for her college education, and dot dot dot, she starts to fall for the competition who is a new girl in town. I talked about this earlier on the podcast with Leah, I'll link to that in the show notes. And then the final one I wanted to hit is All That I Can Fix by Crystal Chan, which is also set in small town Indiana. And it follows a 15-year-old boy named Ronnie, who is a brown kid in town. And he is in this town that has become home to a zoo escapade. So wild that the animals are on the loose. And a town where political activists have been staging a battle over gun rights. And so he's struggling to fit in. And of course, it's made challenging by these outside forces, as well as one that's much, much closer to home for him. And that's the fact that his father is dealing with life-threatening depression. And then there's also this weird kid who keeps following him around. It's a very weird book, and yet one that's utterly delightful and super, super powerful and just a fabulous look at being a young brown kid in a small town and dealing with a family member who is struggling with their mental health. And that's All That I Can Fix by Crystal Chan. So you got three in a row, all set in small town Indiana. Nice. That's impressive. Um, So I, there are so many, but I'm going to (laughs) skip the other depressing one that I was going to mention. And maybe I'll mention (laughs) it briefly later. But I wanted to go with Dear Haiti, Love, Elena by Micah and Maritza Mulit, who are sisters. This is another one of my catnip books because I love a book where a girl is both smart and a smartass. And this book totally has that Mm. down. So I will read the official summary. When a school presentation goes very wrong, Elena Beauparlant finds herself suspended, shipped off to Haiti, and writing the report of a lifetime. And then we move into her voice. You might ask the obvious question. What do I, a 17-year-old Haitian-American from Miami with way too little life experience, have to say about anything? Actually, a lot. Thanks to, quote-unquote, the incident, don't ask. I'm spending the next two months doing what my school is calling a spring volunteer immersion project. It's definitely no vacation. I'm toiling away under the ever-watchful eyes of Tati Estelle at her new nonprofit. And my lean-in, queen of a mother, is even here to make sure I do things right. Or she might just be lying low to dodge the media sharks after a much more public incident of her own. And to hide a rather devastating secret. All things considered, there are some pretty nice perks, like flirting with Tati's distractingly cute intern, getting actual FaceTime with my mom, and experiencing Haiti for the first time. I'm even exploring my family's history, which happens to be loaded with betrayals, superstitions, and possibly even a family curse. You know, typical drama. But it's nothing I can han- can't handle. I love that, because even reading it out loud, I felt like I was reading something I would say. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, I'm not. Haitian, but it totally like that voice was like, oh my God, that's exactly how I talk. This is one (laughs) of those books where I just was like, I would get in a time machine and hand this 
to my teen self if I could. It's really funny, but also deals deals with some some serious stuff, but it's more of a romp than the other two books I mentioned. So it's definitely a lighter a lighter take and starts in the US but mostly takes place outside of the US. That was Dear Haiti, Love Elena by Micah and Maritza Mulit. Awesome. I'm going to do like rapid fire for the next couple because I'm looking at our time and we could keep going and we will save our last topic for the next episode. So people have to turn in, tune in and be like, what was the last topic? Yes. Um, or else this podcast will be four hours long, which, you know, we like to space it out a little bit more than that. Right. Like, I know <laughs> we wouldn't have a problem talking that long, but people will probably yeah. have a problem listening for that long. <laughs> so I'm going to start with two set in the U.S., Rapid Fire, and then two that are not. So the two in the U.S., first one is After the Fall by Kate Hart. I won't go into too much detail, but it's set in the Ozarks in Arkansas, which is a setting almost never seen, especially in YA. And this is a book about sexual assault and about the way girls are forced to be tough when they're really aching deep, deep inside. And it's a really great read for those who love Laurie Hall Sanderson or Courtney Summers. And that is After the Fall by Kate Hart. And then I wanted to mention Daniel Krauss writes some of the best gothic, Midwest gothic, and creepiest, weirdest rural Iowa settings. And he does that in both Scholar and Bent Heavens and absolutely nails what makes rural Iowa so scary. As somebody who spent a few years there, I can say that he absolutely nails it. And those are Scholar and Bent Heavens by Daniel Krauss. And then a little bit more in depth for these next two since they're out of the U.S. The first is Learning to Breathe by Janice Lee Mather, and it's set in Nassau in the Bahamas. And it's not one of those books that's like Ritz and Glitz and white people traveling abroad. It's about a girl named Indy who tries hard to follow by her grandmother's rules, but she finds herself constantly overshadowed by her own mother who has a whole set of challenges in and of herself. So India is sent to live with distant relatives in NASA, and this is where she's trying really hard to conceal that she's pregnant, and she so desperately wants to find a community that she can call her home in this new place with these relatives that she doesn't know very well. That is Learning to Breathe by Janice Lee Mather. And then my last one is Dare to Disappoint, Growing Up in Turkey by Ozgi Salamansi, and this graphic memoir came out a few years ago, but it's one of the ones that I think about a lot all the time. And it follows this teen girl who really craves adventure, but lives in a culture that demands predictability and stability and adherence to the political authorities of Turkey. And this was like an era I knew nothing about. This is a political regime I knew nothing about. And yet every step of the way... You're like, I really want this teen girl to like be able to become who she wants to be. And watching her figure out how she can do that under such strict rules in her country was absolutely fascinating. And that is Dare to Disappoint, Growing Up in Turkey by Ozgi Salamansi. That is a book that I really want to rescue from my storage unit because I know I have it and I still haven't read it, <laughs> which is, I mean, the subtitle of my life. I have it. I haven't gotten to read it yet. <laughs> the Hannah Gomez story. Um, so I'm going to toss out two quick recommendations too before we wrap up. So getting back to tragedy, but also, you know, with a light at the end of the tunnel is Never Fall Down by Patricia McCormick with Arne Chornpond. So it is 
more it's like a memoir that they i think kind of you know cleaned up and maybe combined some characters and stuff but it's about a man who is a survivor of the khmer rouge regime so very young he was forced to become a soldier and separated from his family he was lucky that he played an instrument so he actually got pulled out from the killing fields basically because they wanted him to perform music. But I mean, he still grew up around all this violence and had to survive some pretty horrific things, but came out on the other end. He lives in the US now. He adopted 16 children, which I can't even imagine the chaos in that house. My sister has four (laughs) kids and I'm like, wow, it's this really amazing story. And I mean, I didn't know anything about Cambodia, so it definitely was really interesting to me because it had to do with a lot of stuff that I'd heard words tossed around for, like Khmer Rouge, but didn't actually know anything about. So that's Never Fall Down by Patricia McCormick with Arn Chorn Pond. So my last choice is Daughter of Smoke and Bone by Lainey Taylor. So this is an old favorite. It takes place in Prague and came out around the time I was studying there. So that definitely gave it extra meaning to be able to travel back to Prague after I came home. So it's about a girl who I'm jealous of immediately because she has blue hair that grows right out of her head that way. And I've wanted to dye my hair blue since 2004 when Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind came out. (laughs) (laughs) And so it's about a girl who, you know, just takes art classes like other people do at art school. But she also is always running errands for maybe a monster. So, you know, you have to find out what exactly that monster is doing (laughs) with the items that Karu is collecting for him. So it's this really amazing portal fantasy, which is probably my favorite type of fantasy, um, where you're just literally stepping through a portal to another world and then back again. So that is Daughter of Smoke and Bone by Lainey Taylor, and it's a trilogy. So three very thick books if someone is ready for a project. And they're like her writing is some of the most delicious writing out there. Like just beautiful. Absolutely agree. We will save our next topic for next time because I'm like just looking at it. I'm like, yeah, we'll definitely talk about this for 30 more minutes. Absolutely. (laughs) Which means you tune in in two weeks to catch it. But in the meantime, thank you all for tuning in this week. If you have feedback about the show, as always, you can leave it on Apple Podcasts. That lets us know how we're doing and it helps other people find us. Thanks again to today's sponsors for helping make the show possible. And thanks to our awesome audio editor, Jen Zink, who makes us sound flawless. You can follow me, Kelly Jensen, on Instagram as HeyKellyJensen. And you can follow Hannah on Twitter and Instagram as S. H.G. McLicious, as well as on Instagram as Bookish Girl Fit. And we will talk to you all again in two weeks. See you guys then. Bye. Bye.